How many people are here for the very first time? Okay. And how many people have not heard, have heard no talks in this series? It's about 20 talks on this. Self-knowing, usually the term self-knowledge is used, uh, intentionally using a different term because it, the kind of knowing we're talking about happens only in the active present. It's not a matter of accumulating knowledge for our biography, the story of me and my life starring me. That isn't it. It's more seeing how we live from moment to moment seeing how we live, each one of us, getting to see how we actually live, <clears throat> underscore actually. And quiet passion. Um, just like anything else worthwhile in life, uh, nothing much comes of it unless there's some fire. Uh, there has to be real interest, some uh, energy to do it. Uh, just that here the energy isn't so palpable or obvious. Uh, CNN is not going to come down here to film us doing this because there's nothing to see. But if we did some wild dancing and screaming as a new spiritual practice, we might have some camera people and all kinds of people. Because this, what is it? And yet, all kinds of interesting things can be going on inside. There's a whole world, and, I, and what is being suggested is a world of infinite depth that's inside, relatively unexplored by all of us, most of us. And so uh, the self-knowing uh, is about coming to know ourselves and getting to know that world. It includes, of course, the outer world that's more familiar to us, typically. Uh, but the inner world that we don't have as much experience with, again, I'm generalizing, if it's not true of you, now, you might say, well, that's not true of me. I'm very introverted and quiet, but that's usually thinking about things. And so that will keep you at a certain level of the mind, that level where the mind is thinking. And thinking here includes imagery and uh, emotions, whereas what I'm talking about um, goes well beyond that level that's familiar to us, that's known, K-N-O-W-N. And if you recall from last week, I better just a little bit of review is going to be necessary. I should. Uh, <clears throat> this uh, I'm going to I'm like to suggest that uh, I'm a little awkward with holding papers and referring to them. Uh, my own training uh, by uh, a Korean Zen master. Uh, he, he didn't allow me to do that. In other words, he's, uh, his, he said, you have to be like a jazz musician when you give a Dharma talk. Well, what does he mean by that? He said, you get your theme, and then you just blow. So you have to be clear on your theme. Uh, and I'm much more comfortable with that. Of course, it has certain strengths. Spontaneity, you learn some new things. 
and some tremendous weaknesses. I often forget the most important parts of the talk. Four Noble Truths, I might just cover one and three and forget about. So each approach has its, if you, if you have it all written out, it can be perfect, but at any rate, that's what I'm used to. But tonight, I'm going to be referring to a sutra of the Buddha, and uh, I feel very responsible to it. We're going to go through it slowly over the next few weeks, and I hope that I can demonstrate, or at least begin to suggest, that uh, these teachings, which happened 2,600 years ago, it's a long time ago in India, uh, may be as relevant today as they were then. And uh, each of these sutras, uh, and they're recorded in rather stilted language because uh, they were written down with uh, lots of repetition so that people could memorize it. This was before books. Then came palm leaves, some of which are st still remain. Uh, and so, and also the translations. So this is the best we, ha we can do with these sutras. But what I've been suggesting is that these sutras are talking about each one of us. It's about our life. Uh, and the Buddha makes a remarkable assertion. He's saying that human effort, properly directed, can eliminate unnecessary suffering, psychological suffering, dukkha. That's a remarkable claim. Uh, is he deluded? Maybe the books are just hyperbole, inflated, and you'll have to find out for yourself. But that is, in many ways, what is being said, that as you learn how to direct the tremendous energy that we humans are capable of, we've demonstrated it for thousands of years, projects that are remarkable, getting to the moon, computers, on and on, endless. But somehow, it's much more rare to direct that energy into understanding how we actually live. That seems to be uh, the furthest from our mind based on the results, if you look around. We don't seem to be doing too well at it. We don't seem to be living too well with each other. And so uh, a sutra is uh, giving you directions, hints, uh, reporting, um, experiences that happen to the Buddha and other meditators just like ourselves. In fact, one of the benefits of reading the sutras is, for me, has been, you find out that the human mind hasn't changed that much. And some of the suffering that goes on um, uh, with us, for example, when you first begin, those of you who are newcomers, which may be a fair number of you here, the mind is quite wild, and when you start to look at it, it feels impossible, uh, and you don't want to go near it. And then if you read uh, some of these sutras from those days, it's heading towards 3,000 years, um, the mind was also wild then. People got discouraged then. People were greedy then. Uh, people had lots of hatred then. People were confused then. Some got clear. Some became very loving. Some became very uh, generous. But the full drama has always existed. The reason it may be possible, and it's for you to decide and to test with your own life experience, that these teachings are timeless, is that they have to do with a basic dynamic of suffering. I haven't seen the entire world, but that part of I've done a fair amount of traveling. Wherever you go, it seems like if you get lost in the content, it's very, very different. 
But if you begin to see the basics, you'll see that we humans seem to suffer and experience joy in very much the same way. Um, what was suggested last week, which is the, uh, this is a prelude to getting into the sutra, which is on psychological time, uh, enslavement to psychological time, liberation from psychological time. For those of you who were here last week, refer to the Kalama Sutta. Uh, these were uh, people who lived in this town, Kalama, uh, very privileged, highly educated, uh, intelligent, motivated, and they were having a problem because all the teachers came through, all the different kinds of teachings, like Cambridge. Sounds exactly like Cambridge, with all the different posters, you know, different smiling faces, all maintaining that they have the only way, uh, the, the oldest way, the quickest way, uh, who's smiling, whose teeth, face is more like a, a Halloween jack-o'-lantern than the other. Um, and they were confused, maybe you are today, uh, going from one center to another, from one practice to another. Uh, some of that's good because it's shopping. At a certain point, I hope you find what you're looking for, then don't shop anymore. You may have to because it's built into our genes, apparently. We have a strong consumer tendency. But that's not going to help you with this stuff. You don't need to know a lot. You need to find a path and know the basics and then really do it. Um, I, some of the deepest and most helpful teachers I had in Asia were illiterate or bordering on illiteracy. But they were wise. They didn't even know that the earth was round, and they didn't believe it when I explained it, using all the high school science I could muster up. Just not true. But they were happy and I was miserable, so something, <laughs> okay, something was going on there. Um, that particular sutra, the Buddha, uh, the Buddha comes into town and they say, well, now what is it? You're going to do the same thing, right? You're going to tell us you have this great teaching. We've already heard it from so many, we're bewildered. But the Buddha doesn't do that. He's, he understands the confusion. Uh, and he says, I'm just going to give an element. It's uh, actually quite an extensive sutra, but this is really an important aspect of it. Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering different views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these dharmas or teachings are unskillful, these dharmas are blameworthy, these dharmas are criticized by the wise, these dharmas when adopted and carry out lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. When you know for yourselves that these dharmas are skillful, these dharmas are blameless, these dharmas are praised by the wise, uh, these dharmas, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. A very pragmatic test is given to us. Don't give final authority over to any of those sources. In our, in our case, for example, if something's in print, uh, people tend to believe it's uh, much more likely to believe it's really true. 
than if they just hear it in words. There's so many different ways in which our mind is influenced, the way it wants to believe, its need to believe. If it's ancient, point to a certain scripture. It, the scripture said so. Fine, settled, not negotiable. The Buddha isn't saying that. He say, he all, what he's saying is, uh, don't give exclusive or final authority over to any of these sources, any of them, including me. I mean, that's what, that was the whole point. Don't give final authority over to me just because I'm the last one in town who's come here with these teachings. And what he's saying is, test it. Test it in your life. Is it skillful? And skillful in the Buddha's use of that term is its mental skill, mind skill, heart skill. Uh, is this, uh, this quality of mind, does it lead to benefit, to happiness, to peace, to fulfillment, to freedom? for you and for the people in your life, if it does, you'd be foolish not to keep you, to not rely on it. If it doesn't, then why do you keep doing it? Of course, you could also look at your life as it is up to now. And, and I think we do do that from time to time. We reflect back and we see that certain things are not skillful. They're not beneficial. And, and we know certain things are, but we have a hard time weaning ourselves from what's unskillful. Have you noticed? You know exactly what you should stop doing, and yet it rolls on again and again. How many more New Year's Eve vows do we have to make? And it doesn't stop it anyway. Uh, so, but now we're getting a new teaching, and this is the test that's offered to us. Now, self-knowing, uh, have you met people who, who never heard of Buddhism or are not particularly religious? Uh, any, any religion that uh, you may be following or been brought up in, and yet they seem to know themselves fairly well. Uh, some are kind of referred to as streetwise. That is, you, some people learn more from living than others, it seems. Uh, typically learning, of course, from mistakes, from suffering. Some of us learn from that. Some of us don't. Not so much. Okay. And that, so then what do we need the Buddha's stuff for. Let's just do it ourselves. And that's the other misunderstanding of this sutra. Sometimes you uh, hear people quoting this as license to just do your own thing. Um, it is not throwing out all the accumulated intelligence that the human race has developed over thousands of years. That would be stupid. And so what it's referring to is to take the counsel of the wise. For example, the Buddha is offering some guidance as to how to live. Otherwise, what, why are we talking here tonight? Just, uh, just be aware, run out, do what you want to do, let's meet in about 10 years, let me know what happens. Probably not a whole lot. Or some of you may be really interested and learn a lot, but typically, and I say this typically because obviously uh, it's, a, it's a, a broad generalization, what we find out has more to do with different aspects of our personality, our character, which is refined out of this. We, some of the bumps and, and wounds of life and some of the rewards. And we learn about perhaps the limitations of some of the things that are held up to us as what will make life uh, fulfilling. Externals, things that are outside of ourselves, if we get them, if we can get them and keep them, if we can turn them into pointers that that's who we are. And maybe we learn that it isn't quite what I was told it is. Okay. So there's no question 
that uh, you can smooth out, sort of sandpaper off some of the rough edges. But the self-knowing that's being talked about here goes well beyond that. We all start there. We have to start where we are, including these teachings. And that means uh, getting to know your ordinary life as it is, as you live it uh, in daily life. Now that never stops in the Buddhist teaching. It's just the depth of where you can go as your mind matures. Whatever level of spiritual maturity you might have now, understand that that can ripen, that can be um, nourished and brought along, strengthened. In other words, there are ways to do that that people have developed thousands of years ago. Uh, okay. So we live our life, we test it. Um, one of the, for those of you who uh, know a bit about the Buddhist teaching, you know there are the precepts. Don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, don't misuse sexual energy, don't misuse speech, uh, don't cloud the mind with intoxicants of any kind. Um, those are hints at what is unskillful. But now, is that the same as a sort of commandments? Not really. Uh, we begin that way. They're guidelines, because, guidelines as to how to live because countless people before us have found that, let's say if you misuse sexual energy, uh, don't be surprised if there's a lot of suffering. If you start killing people, don't be surprised if they want to kill you back. If you steal things, don't be surprised if you're in prison, etc. Uh, so we know that there is a price that's paid. We already know that. Uh, but it's not so much a matter of restraint. Of course, that is the, that's where we begin. That's the bare minimum. As more and more seeing through wisdom that the reason you don't do this is because it's not wise. That is, if you do do it, it tends to bring suffering to you and to others. And then the question becomes, who is, a, who is willing and able to learn from their life experience and who isn't? Now, I'm assuming that everyone who's come to this odd building this odd room, that you want to, that you want to do that. And if, otherwise, there's no point to our meeting with each other. Uh, what, I'm, what I was suggesting, let me back up a moment. Uh, in previous weeks, I've been uh, pointing out specifically uh, gratitude for uh, the different things that I've learned from this and other traditions um, because they've made a huge difference in my life and they're some of the what I've learned I never in a million years would have come upon them on my own even just being aware of the breathing and all the wonderful outcomes of that I never would have come up on that on my own I'm far too intelligent and well-read it's too simple-minded and yet uh, people lived in caves and forests and did it for years and uh, turns out it's not the end of the journey, but it can make a substantial contribution to it. The next one, the, the sutra I'm dealing with, deals with time, T-I-M-E. Um, psychological time. It's not so much chronological time. Uh, you don't have to throw out your watches. Uh, we need them. 
we need it's to for conventional life and here I'm not using conventional in a, a negative way at all for ordinary life social life to proceed we need we need to agree on certain things and one of the those things is the time okay so it's not throwing that out and even psychological time uh, what it's saying is if we don't understand our relationship to psychological time and I think that will become clearer as we go on um, it will result in, in unskillful action and suffering. And that's, of course, for you to find out. What I want to do over the next few weeks, I don't know how long it'll take to cover this sutra uh, satisfactorily. Uh, but what I'd like to do is give you a, a general introduction of where it's going and then uh, deepen it uh, each week. It's called the Bade Karata Sutta, and it's in its subtitle, An Auspicious Day. It's in relationship to, at the time, in ancient times, it's still going on now, an auspicious day might be thought of as ruled by the heavens, by some sign, by some mysterious, uh, by being given a talisman, a charm, someone blessing you. Uh, what this is saying is uh, an auspicious day has to do with how you relate to psychological time. If you can really learn how to understand what's happening about past, present, and future, that day will be auspicious. Um, that's the translation that I favor. Okay, I'm going to start, that's why I have to use the paper. Uh, reading, and I'm going to go slowly and uh, go back and forth here. I've heard, this is the, the sutra translation, I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was staying in Savati at Jetta's Grove, Anattapindika's monastery. There he addressed the monks. Monks? Now, here uh, you have to understand that monks it doesn't refer just to celibate monastics. It refers to anyone who's committed to a meditative life. So it's more general than that. Uh, don't feel that this is not about you. Uh, sometimes the term yogis is used. I actually prefer it because that sort of is a broad term. It covers everyone who is, has some interest in uh, the contemplative dimension of living. So the Buddha addressed the monks, monks. Yes, Lord, the monks responded. The Blessed One said, Monks, I will teach you the summary and exposition of one who has had an auspicious day. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, Lord, the monks replied. The Blessed One said, You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind the future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see. Right there. Right there. Yeah, yeah, right there. Not taken in. Unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. There's more to go, but let's begin to uh, sketch out what that means. One has to do with the reviving the past. 
that's in your mind. The other has to do with placing a lot of hope in the future. I'm going to make the commentary, what I'm interested in, the way I'm interested in relating to this sutra is for people who practice. It's not, um, although I, I've read scholarly and ancient commentaries on it, uh, many of them are, don't seem to be aimed at people who actually practice. It's sort of people who fall in love with the ideas in and of themselves. And it's not sort of people who are in the trenches uh, who are actually trying to put this stuff into action in their, in their lives, messy as it may be. That's what I'm interested in. I'm saying that these teachings are practical. They're for us, ordinary people like ourselves. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to give um, be a bit generous or in um, talking about time, psychological time, if you recall, as one of my teachers put it, the entire teaching of the Buddha has to do with do you eat time or does time eat you? And uh, I'm not going to explain that. Maybe some of that is self-evident, but it does sound a little strange, I must admit. Okay, um, the, f the future. Don't pin your hopes. Well, you shouldn't chase after the past and or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. I don't know if this will come as a surprise to you, but there is no such thing as the future in a profound way. There's an idea of the future, and it can be the use of that idea about what may come can be skillful. In other words, in using these, this terminology, uh, there are skillful uses of anticipating a future. There are skillful uses of drawing upon the past. Uh, and the same about the present. Uh, I'm going to deal with all three and start giving you a few examples that will, may, I hope, make it more concrete. Let me start with a, a teaching from the Diamond Sutra. It's a very old uh, Buddhist sutra. Uh, and it's a story about a, um, a uh, this happened in China. This is after, well after the time of the Buddha, but these sutras were finally, they were brought to China, and the Chinese were attempting to practice them in their own way, just as we're doing now. Um, and uh, there was a scholar who had mastered the Diamond Sutra. He knew everything about the Diamond Sutra, and he had heard that in the Zen sect in a certain part of China, and the Zen sect in many ways is very simple, similar to what we do, simple too, uh, is that the emphasis is on the direct experience of living, uh, the, the raw experience of living, and not so much on scholarship. And most of early Buddhism in China, almost entirely, was made up of either ritualistic or scholarly endeavor. And so when a genuine teacher of meditation named Bodhidharma arrived from India, what he found is that people were studying the scriptures and knew it inside and out. They did all the rituals, but no one was meditating and no one was getting free. And people were still suffering, uh, but had just picked up this one aspect, an important aspect, but had stopped there. They stopped with just the words. Uh, the point is to transfer the words, in a sense, from the Buddha's mind to our mind, 
and then to live it and find out if this, if this really helps us uh, live. Um, at any rate, this gentleman who would walk with his big knapsack full of his commentaries on the Diamond Sutra was coming to challenge a Zen master who had made an outrageous statement that the teachings aren't so necessary, it's just directly seeing into the present moment. And he stopped off at a, uh, a tea shop uh, very close to where his destination was, the, the particular Zen master that he was going to challenge. And uh, he was very thirsty, and uh, the old woman who ran the tea shop turned out to be in her own right a master. And so he started talking and made it clear that he had, where are you going, where have you been, where are you coming from? Uh, and he made it clear that I know everything there is to know about the Diamond Sutra. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. I wasn't there. Uh, and uh, I'm really fed up with what I hear the Zen sect is doing. They're just disrespectful for all these uh, brilliant teachings. So she, or, she already psyched him out. And then she said, um, well, there's a saying in this Diamond Sutra, which he had mastered, according to him, that the future can't be grasped. The past can't be grasped, and even the present can't be grasped. So with which mind are you going to refresh yourself with tea? And he was stumped. Duh. Okay. Uh, and so he realized that he was stuck in ideas. Now, uh, you might understand the future as an idea. Well, I, I don't want to take that for granted. When, you, when there's something about the future, it's a thought in your head. And maybe there's imagery, right? I mean, if you don't agree, you'll have a chance to uh, question me and challenge me. Maybe I'm full of baloney. Uh, but my understanding is the future is some imagining of the mind. It invents what it thinks is going to happen. In the meantime, it's here. The past... The mind is drawing upon events that are already over, never to return again. Never. Not exactly. It's impossible. Nothing does. And you might say, well, okay, the present. But even the present is um, covered over conceptually. We're not, very often, we're not in touch with the actual living present because we have ideas and notions about what the present is and we're, we're not feeling what's actually happening. Now, um, to, get a, to move into this a little bit and to deal with this poor scholar, um, what these teachings are saying, of course, is the, the immense significance of the present moment. Have you heard that before? You don't need, it's all over the place. Now, be here now, power of now, voice of now, uh, commentary on the power of now. It's just, it's an old idea. This is what uh, the Buddha is talking about. It's in the Upanishads, the Gita. It's a very old, and it's not limited to, to uh, Indian teaching. The ancients knew about it. Uh, so this, the, this idea of now, and this I've discovered from, this is not theoretical, I've discovered from teaching for a number of years. Because that's what's being emphasized. If you come here, we're going to be bringing you back to what is, just the way it actually is right here, right now. We start with something uh, relatively innocuous, unless you have asthma or some other thing, aspect that uh, makes the breath a very unattractive object. Uh, can you fully be with an in-breath? 
Can you fully be with an out-breath? Well, you're going to find that the mind doesn't want to be with an, in, with an in-breath or an out-breath. I, I assume all of you who have done some practice here know what I'm talking about. The mind is wild to begin with. Every mind that I've met, including brain surgeons from Beth Israel Hospital, wild. Not when they're operating, obviously. Okay. Uh, so it seems as if no one really wants to be in the present moment. Because when you watch the breath, that's just a simple uh, way to, to see it. But if you just watch your day, you'll see it's much more uh, developed and conditioned and powerful. Uh, it seems like we don't want to be in the present moment because we don't like the way the present moment is very, very often. We're unhappy. There's something wrong in a relationship. We're not making enough money. Uh, we don't like where we're living. Uh, we want to get out of a relationship. We want to get into a relationship. Uh, we're afraid of unemployment. We're afraid of terrorists. Uh, somehow, the present moment, uh, if you're older, you're afraid of death. If you're younger, uh, you're afraid of if you seem adult and grown up yet and strutting around to show that you're really a man or a woman. And those of us who are a little older are holding back laughter as young people. Anyone around here? Can I speak safely? It looks like it. Okay. Uh, so if the, if the teacher is and the teaching, all I'm doing is trying to express these teachings accurately as I can, is saying, come back to now, come back to now. And the mind uh, doesn't want to be in now because it doesn't like to be with what the content of now is. And in effect, this is what I hear people telling me. Uh, because see if this is so. A lot of life is we're doing things in order to, ex because we expect there's going to be some much better future coming. Does everyone, even if you don't agree, do you know what I'm trying to say? That is, I'm doing it like even meditation. All right, I'll do this silly stuff, in, out, in, out, in, out. Come to these retreats, silent, my knees hurt, my back hurt. But what's going to come is going to be some incredible transformation, and then I'm going to be okay. Then I'll really be able to do these uh, teachings. And... Uh, I'll glow in the dark or something of this sort. Uh, put in these terms, what I hear is, you don't want to be in the now, but uh, you want to be in the future when things are going to be great, and then in the future you'll be in the now. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, because uh, a, f a future that, um, let's say, develops... That is some uh, that to some degree is refined, more refined, which has less suffering, which is wiser, which is kinder, and so forth, grows out of fully taking care of this moment. That's what this practice is saying. It's not that you're lost in the present moment. It's that if you fully take care of the present moment, that releases, sets in motion a dynamic that does improve your future, not as a fantasy, but actually. If you want to have uh, a beneficial future, look to how you're living now. Because how you're living now, you're planting seeds for the future. If you don't like the way things are now, look to your past. Probably you'll see that this, this, the seeds for this, to some degree, perhaps to a great degree, have come from the past, and now the fruit is here. And so the, uh, here, this is of course karma we're talking about. But in the Buddha's teaching on karma, it isn't sort of Harvard Square karma. Yeah, man, that's my karma. Uh, which is, can be so misused because there's room for uh, whatever it was you did in the past. 
there's ongoing, life is dynamic and alive and can be modified by how you relate to the present. So that even tendencies or actions that happened in the past uh, can be modified, corrected, or even eliminated depending on how you are in the, in the present. And some cannot be very, very strong. So it's, it's, a, it's an alive process. It isn't some kind of ineluctable, uh, you do this and you get you know, a punch in the jaw. It doesn't go that way. Or we do things and then don't take a response. I can't help it, man. Uh, it's my karma. Um, because what the Buddha is saying is, and that's what I meant, it's quite a powerful to me, a, quite an assertion. He's saying, uh, if you direct your energy properly, uh, you, can be, you can take care of your unhappiness. Uh, you can begin to let go of the unnecessary suffering that characterizes your mind that doesn't want to uh, that the mind that doesn't want to look at this unhappiness in the present moment, but yet uh, can't get there unless, the, unless you're able to, to look at the present moment. First noble truth of the Buddha, there is suffering in this life. The Buddha's not saying everything is just suffering, uh, misquoted often, but can anyone doubt that there is suffering in this life? And what it's saying is, if there is, do you know it? Are you there with it? That's why dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, or anguish, ranging from the most trivial to the most profound torment, uh, all of that, that's considered the door to liberation. So I'm sorry, there's no, it's not a quick fix to anything. It means if you don't want to do that, if you want to take a look at the present moment, which is what the sutra is saying, that's what makes a day auspicious, not an amulet or according to this teaching. I hope I'm not offending astrologers or anyone. Uh, there's always some, you know, wrong speech now is almost you open your mouth and it's wrong speech. Um, humor, completely eliminated, unless it's a late night talk show and you're famous and get paid for it. But otherwise, I'm, you know, I'm almost mute. I have not, you know, there's hardly anything I can say because so much of what I thought was okay turns out to be wrong speech. What is not wrong speech, uh, politically incorrect, sorry. Um, let me give you some small examples of, of the future. And tri they're trivial, this one's trivial, uh, unless you're a yogi, of course. Uh, we go out to uh, the, all three teachers here, uh, and many of the people who come here, also practice at a place called the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. It's a residential uh, retreat center in the country where you can stay for varying lengths of time, uh, days, weeks, months, even longer. And there's a loop. It's about, I don't know, three and a half miles. It takes about 45 or 50 minutes. You walk out the door. and um, I like to do it when I'm uh, leading retreats there because we do so much sitting in the hall, giving interviews, giving talks and so forth, eating, that when I get a chance, I just want to step it out and move rapidly around that loop. Now, much of the year, the loop is very cold. Not all of the year. And then also, much of the year, the loop is very hot. Okay? And so what I've noticed is I start to make my way around the loop. If it's cold... I see that my mind isn't on the walking. I'm not fully 
uh, following the teaching at all. It's thinking about uh, when I get back, the hot drink that I'm going to have, and uh, the warmth of the building, and then I can lie down for five or ten minutes before I uh, start to teach again. And, it, and then a kind of a little bit of uh, that warmth fills up my psychological presence, and I feel a lot better, and I can get through it. But if you're a yogi, um, I'm not saying never do that. So once I saw it, of course, then I had to see it and let go of it and see that my mind didn't like being in the present moment because it was cold. And, but that's what the practice is, is learning how to do that. And so one of the things that came out of it, and this is just a tiny example, is that I saw there was tremendous value. It isn't kind of just will sort of force myself to be cold and walk grinning, you know, grinning, grinning, grinning and bearing it uh, and then wind up a kind of dried out, shriveled up, bitter, bitter person from years of teaching out there. Uh, you're open to what it brings up, resistance. So much of human tiredness is not because we, you work hard. I don't think hard work is what tires us so much, or it's a different kind of tiredness. A huge amount of resistance all day long. Much of it is to the present moment. Please test it. See if it's true. I have found it to be so for myself. And as you start to not uh, to see resistance and accept it as just like any other mind moment, it's not better or worse, it's just what's happening, it starts to lose its power and you find you have a lot more energy in its place. Okay. The same with a hot day. With, when I'm walking around, you start sweating, and the mosquitoes are there sometimes. And then the, I notice the same thing. The mind quite naturally is already taking a shower back at the, the meditation center, and then I feel a lot better, and I get through it. And sometimes, if I can, I do it twice a day. And so once I saw it, that became my practice. Okay, so that's what we're up against. Uh, the mind uh, very often doesn't want to be in the present. It's been conditioned, powerfully conditioned, to either live in an imaginary future that's either hopeful, wonderful, better than what we have now, surely, or nightmarish, horrible, terrible. But in the meantime, this is the way it is. We're right here. Or a past, the same thing, a horrible past, where many of us actually have been wounded severely. And that's, this is not saying that isn't true, or that those wounds don't follow us. They do. Or we have good times, too. And it's not to not dip into either of those. It's more how to use them skillfully. And I, we'll come to that. Um, the present moment. Remember the old lady said, The, the Diamond Sutra, which you're an expert at, says the future can't be grasped, the past can't be grasped, caught, and even the present can't be grasped. So which mind are you going to refresh yourself with? Uh, which mind are you going to be drinking the tea with? And he couldn't answer. Okay. Now, I was given that. It's a, 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 a practice teaching that you get in some schools of Zen. And... Uh, they're not as uh, gentle and kind as the Vipassana approach. You come into interviews and we look at you sort of like, oh, how you doing? And, you know, would you like a hot chocolate and some animal crackers if, you, <laughs> if you're suffering and uh, encouragement? And we listen to you, you know, the story of me and my life a little bit. In, in, in this particular school of Zen, you're given this. Uh, 
what would you do if the old lady challenged you? And most all my answers for week after week were incorrect. And the tradition in, these in this school is the teacher just often yawning, just rings the bell, get out. <laughs> that, that's it. The interview can last the, it, not, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Well, I would, that, I would say that, da, 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 ting a ling a ling, you know. Okay. Finally, this one day, I did finally get it right. This isn't the way to get it right, or the only way, but I don't know if the teacher took compassion on me because I was so uh, goofy, or it was correct. But at any rate, he didn't ring the bell, and he said, very good, so I prefer to believe that. Uh, He said, well, what would you do? The old lady says, you can't grasp past, future, and present. What would you do? And I just had an imaginary cup of tea, and I drank it. Now, if you just do that, would that be the right answer? Then I'm telling you, now you, if you all go to a Zen center and they ask you, you all do that. No, because what he was looking for, and, and they're experts at this, is to see if I was totally, 100%, undividedly drinking tea. Just drinking tea. It wasn't a real cup, but, and I don't know if I was, but I was as close as possible. The point is I got the spirit of it. Uh, in that sense, when you're fully and totally attentive as a whole being to anything, there is no time. There's no past, present, or future, psychologically. When you're totally in the moment, totally attentive, and it turns out not if you have to be somewhere at a certain time, but it turns out that it's a deeper experience of reality. And there are no problems when you're fully in the moment, even if there's a problem. In other words, your life situation may be very troubling, may be a challenge, may be something you would rather not be there. But when you, when you go deeply into the moment, and um, I want to at least cover this this evening, uh, so you'll understand that the stakes are high here if you have any spiritual aspirations. Because uh, the present moment has immense significance. Uh, the point is, why bother with the present moment? And I've just suggested one reason is, well, if you take care of the present, then you start to uh, shed all kinds of um, unskillful ways of living that the quality of your life will improve. That sounds good. And that sounds sensible, and who wouldn't want to do that? If you're sane, you want to improve your life. Okay. But as you do that, and again, uh, so that your actions are, let's say, wiser, kinder, more appropriate, you find that that's just on the bare surface of action. That's uh, a wise action that is, uh, makes life better for you and for everyone with us. It's like civilized living uh, where we really are civil and we really do what's not only beneficial for us, but for others. So we're not as selfish. We're not so self-preoccupied. Uh, so much self-conceit going on. And the quality of your life improves. But you have to understand that there's infinite depth to the present moment. And the whole point of the practice is to go to that place as you go deeper and deeper into it, it's not an idea, present moment. The old lady was right. You can't grasp it. You can only be it. And as you go into that present moment, it has 
infinite depth, you can call it stillness, silence, original mind, original nature, Buddha nature, that's in this tradition. You can call it Christ consciousness, God. I'm not as familiar with those traditions, so I only know this one. Uh, of course, some of that, a lot of that work goes on in the sitting and, and on retreats. Uh, so that living in the present moment is, an, you see, there only is the present moment. During this next week, see if that's so, or right now. There, the present moment is, to be in the present moment is another way of saying to be more alive, to be more fully alive. You tap an aliveness that's in a sense concealed uh, by all these thoughts and worries and preoccupations and plans. And then I'll go, he said, she said, no one talks. Uh, that's all that that's going, that's much more interesting to us. Much more interesting. And then you get to a threshold which is forbidden. Forbidden by who? By the ego, of course. This threshold, not permitted. Nine, yet, no. Because what happens there is the ego has to be left behind. And so typically when the mind starts getting quiet, really quiet, people report fear, or they don't even report it. They're often running, let me go back into that old uh, fantasies that, you know, I, because we're afraid of the unknown, because we haven't been there. But again, that's our imagination. It's again future. So much fear is that. It's only unknown because we haven't been there. There are people who, who have and are there, have been and are there. And so there's this kind of depth going on. Um, and so you could say what I'm talking about uh, is enlightenment, is um, full awakening, is what the Buddha is talking about finally, and no one got cheated. Everyone has access to it. And the journey into it is not just on the cushion, so that more and more, if you can just begin to live where you are, wherever you are, if you're doing the dishes, do the dishes. And begin to see how you're not doing the dishes that your mind is on the movie or on the coffee shop and the dishes are sparkling and they're nicely stacked and nothing's cracked and someone comes in oh beautiful and you have hardly been there we trained we're like we're like uh, cheerful robots like what is it the stepford wives if you've seen that yet it's not i don't think it's so great but there's some good good things in it which have to do with when we humans become so uh, good um because when you're really doing the dishes, uh, let me give you an example, which might be better, and I'll close with two examples, and then leave it, for, and then we'll pick it up from whenever the next talk is. This one has to do with broccoli. Uh, as much as I can, I'm trying to uh, dip into my and other yogis' experience about these issues. Some years ago, someone uh, we had a, we have practice groups here. As we meet one evening a week for a couple of hours, typically we do some sitting meditation, some walking, uh, and then uh, some instructions, and then question and answer. We talk about the practice. And this was about the eighth week, and this person had been doing this practice, and their profession was a cook. They were a professional cook. So this one day, about the eighth or ninth week, this uh, uh, person came back, and he was just radiant, just talking about he was chopping broccoli his, in his job as a cook and suddenly 
there was tremendous joy and freshness, and he felt really refreshed, rejuvenated, alive. Uh, and would the answer be, let's go to the nearest Chinese restaurant because they serve a lot of broccoli? It's not in the broccoli. It's that this person was fresh, was totally just chopping broccoli, and felt more alive. It has nothing to do necessarily with broccoli. It could be taking out the garbage. And enlightenment experiences that are recorded, the Chinese are very scholastic, they record them. Most others, I don't think, do, that I know of. Uh, and a cherry blossom falling to the ground, uh, you getting your foot jammed in a door, most anything will do. It's not in the cherry blossom, because we see cherry blossoms all the time, and we see them fall to the ground, and nothing happens to us. The mind has to be ripe, so that it gets the significance of whatever it is. Uh, someone dying can do it, but just dying won't do it. Um, you know, there's a funeral parlor across the street. If we got all the uh, the uh, morticians uh, go to a conference of morticians of the world, I, we probably wouldn't find one enlightened person. Maybe there'd be a few, because just seeing death doesn't necessarily do anything. It's it depends on what you do with seeing that your life is finite, and it has to do with with that. Um, let me just give you a practical application of these teachings and then we'll uh, call it quits for this evening. We'll have some discussion. Excuse me. Some years ago I was um, practicing Zen in Korea and uh, we were in the middle, uh, we were doing a three-month retreat in uh, a mountain monastery there. Uh, we, uh, there were three Americans, and we were told we were the first Americans to come over there to practice Zen. Uh, we spoke no Korean, most of the Koreans spoke no English, but we had a few translators, so in some ways it was a mess. Everyone was really trying. And so we uh, wind up, we come to this mountain monastery, you have to go way up into the mountains, walk the second part of it is you have to walk up and it goes on. And we get to where our home will be uh, for 90 days. Uh, yes, three months. So we're practicing early in the morning, three in the morning to 11 at night, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, eating and sitting and walking and sitting and so forth. Great. We weren't beginners. We, we were... I was, you know, fairly ready. I mean, we didn't know what we were getting into, but we were determined. Also, I think embarrassed because we felt we were ambassadors of America and that if we flubbed it, it would just look bad. Anyway, uh, stupid attitude, but it was true. Um, we approached the 45th day and suddenly uh, we're, the announcement is made that in, in two or three days, we have our traditional one week of no sleep. And w no one told us about this. <laughs> and uh, what? And uh, the teacher reiterated, said, uh, it's a tradition in Korean Zen at this monastery. Uh, midway through the retreat, uh, we take one week and we go without sleep. I said, you're kidding, right? I said, no, no, no. no. Uh, I said, what do you mean no sleep? He said, no sleep. That's what it means. Uh, we just keep going for seven days. Uh, there's eating. You can go to the bathroom. Okay. Uh, well, the three of us 
we went off, you know, after a, a, a meal. We were hysterics, hysterical. You know, sort of like, uh, we were annoyed, angry. Why didn't they tell us about this? I never would have come here. This is a barbarian approach. This is ridiculous. Um, let's go home. Let's pack up and get out of here. Who do these people think they are? How can they tell us to do this thing? No, we, it's going to be horrible on the body. And here am I eating all this health food and doing yoga. And now they're telling me to stay up for a week. It's very, very cruel and stupid. I'm, and we were, we were very, very frightened and uh, very upset, to put it mildly. But we were embarrassed. You know, we decided, well, we can't go home. First Americans to come to practice in Korea <laughs> hold their head between their legs and crawl home. No, so we did it. But it, the first day was a nightmare. And I'm not exaggerating. A day mare, too. I mean, it was just <laughs> terrible. And uh, so finally, there was an old Zen master, and I was, and we approached the second day, no sleep. Uh, you know, we were bleary-eyed, we were staggering. Uh, and you take turns, someone has a stick, and it's sort of like the watch person. Because people, you do tend to fall asleep, and then whack. And so then you wake up. It's not brutal. It's, it's, hit, you, it's hit you in a certain part of the back that wakes you up. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so uh, we thought, my God, if if day one was like this, we have six more days to go. How are we going to do it? So I arranged to meet with Hayam Sanim, who at the time I think was somewhere around 94 years old. I don't know how old he was. He was very, very old. He had no motor ability at all. Couldn't walk. And so four monks carried him in to the interview literally put him down in front of me with a translator. A nun was a translator. And uh, he was as bright-eyed and clear as anyone could be, but his body just didn't work anymore. So he heard my sad tale. And they told us that there's 45 minutes, for 45 days, you can't have a w just a week without sleep. And no one ever told us that. And we came here and, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Uh, and then uh, he got very quiet and he said, no problem. He said, we've been doing it for a long time. Look, it's simple. You're, you're, you're being weighed down with the concept of the future, of sort of like six more days to come. Oh my God, if day one is like this, then each day will be progressively worse. By the fifth day, we'll be ready to just jump off the top of the mountain. And he said, uh, or we, we look back and say, it's been a day and a half, almost two days, or two days, and I haven't gotten any sleep at all. This is horrible. He said, throw away the past, throw away the future, just fully take it one event at a time. When it's time to sit, just sit. When it's time to walk, just walk. When it's time to eat, just eat. When you go to the toilet, just go to the toilet, period. And when your mind starts going into all these ideas of nightmarish futures and what, uh, if the past was this way, how the future is going to be, uh, just come back to now, just this simple, straightforward reality. Um, we did. And I'm not saying it was a piece of cake, but it was bearable. It really was. Now, it doesn't apply just to... to uh, f to f to uh, seven days without sleep because what I learned from that is when you have tasks that uh, go on for a bit of time and they're either not pleasant or it's not going well or uh, let's say if any of you I remember just in college I wish I had known this then you know you're doing term papers and 
you know, you delay and delay, and then finally when your back's against the wall, you write a term paper, and you're desperate and frantic and cups of coffee, and everyone's making these very bad jokes, and, you know. Uh, there are many times in life where if you could just focus in on the present moment, take care of it, and then allow the next moment to reveal itself, and then take care of that, you find that you save a lot of energy and that you're more effective. Uh, we, we definitely were able to do it. Would I do it again? No. Do I teach it? No. You wouldn't do it, would you? How many people would come to a retreat where we kept you awake for one week? Show of hands. See what I mean? Oh, you would. Okay. We'll keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, take his name. <laughs> okay. So you have a macho man thing a little bit? No. No? no? Sounds interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> Especially the hallucinations, the exhaustion. and yeah. uh, But at any rate, the advice was very sound advice, and it's, it's the same as this. Uh, there's one I just thought of it. Um, you know the myth of Sisyphus? That myth? If some of you may, I'm going to paraphrase because I haven't read it in a long, long time. Undergraduate days, I think. As I recall, correct me if it's off, uh, poor Sisyphus, Sisyphus is uh, condemned to a lifetime of pushing this uh, boulder up a hill, up a, uh, a steep cliff, uh, incline, and then once he gets it to the top, it just rolls down again. And then he has to go down and then push it to the top again, and then it rolls down and he has to push it to the top again, and he's sentenced to a lifetime of this. Is that reasonable? Sounds awful. Uh, how, if we were Dharma practitioners, could we, how could we help poor Sisyphus? It's the same teaching. See, if you're pushing it up, then there's the expectation, when I get it to the top, then uh, my job is done, and then I'll have something nice and fresh to do. But no, it then rolls down again. Then I get it to the top, uh, and the expectation or the yearning or the wish, because out of normal life, that's what happens. You finish something, you get it to the top, and it's okay, and then you move on to something else. But, not, but that was his curse. He couldn't. Okay. Now, supposing you throw away how you think things are supposed to be. Totally. And all it is, is you're just pushing this rock, and you get it to the top, and then it rolls down, and you don't have the expectation of it. You don't have any expectations. Your mind is clear, and you just go down. And that's what life is. You just push it to the top again. Now, I'm giving a, more of a Dharma interpretation. I think that what the, the myth is trying to say, that life has some of that in it. And uh, that is, we don't solve things forever. You know, they just keep, there's a rec how many more times do we have to brush our teeth? <laughs> and that's simple-minded. You know, again and again, oh yeah, and then the flossing, you know. Well, you get some instruction here, I'm going to be awake and just floss, you know. You, get, you fall asleep on yourself within two minutes. I've been working with that one for about 25 years. And, uh, okay. So, you can see uh, how learning about time, psychological time, might be helpful. And what I hope we can do in subsequent. Uh, moving through the sutra, there's more to it, and then it gets even more specific, uh, is more and more, and particularly if you, uh, between now and whenever, uh, bring this into your life, and, and then when you'll have something to, 
something not just speculative. You'll have something to talk about uh, if and when we meet again. Okay. Those of you who would like to leave now, please do. But um, contrary to the rules of etiquette here, um, I, maybe we have to, I feel we have to change those rules. Uh, this is an urban center, and uh, I feel that one of our main jobs is to not set up limitations. People have busy lives, work all day, you know, all the things that, that we do. And so if you want to leave, uh, I think the etiquette is if you leave, then please go. Uh, if you decide to stay, then you have to stay for the entire time of the Q&A. I don't think that's necessary. I will not be insulted if you can only stay for, let's say, five or ten minutes and then you leave. It's fine with me. Now, I want to say something. Most, many, many people leave at this point. You're, this, the best part of the, of the evening is really this. But you don't want to hear your peers, you know, like, well, what did I know? You know, they're asking the questions that might be, they're asking it for you and often challenging me to, to try to answer it in some practical and fresh way. So if you have the time, I would encourage you uh, to see if uh, sometimes being this is part of the value of the Sangha. Sangha is the community of like-minded people practicing together. And I know if you're very, very new, uh, maybe much of what was said tonight might seem not too sensible. I don't know. But if you're going to go, this is it. Please go. I mean, go. Don't lull. Because uh, I'm going to start in the Q&A right away. See, by the, the measure of the Kalama Sutta, uh, at least to some degree, I've tested these teachings in practical life, and they have been beneficial. Like not getting caught up in psychological time about the future, let's say at that monastery. Someone taught it to me. I didn't, wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have come up with it on my own. And it changed the quality of my life drastically. So that's what I'm trying to get at. The Kalama Sutta is saying, test these teachings. Don't accept it just because the Buddha said so. Uh, Sariputta, who was one of the Buddha's closest disciples, the Buddha was once uh, questioning all the meditators about a teaching that he gave. And he said, what do you think of this teaching, Shariputra in Sanskrit? Most of you might hear it that way. Uh, and he said, what do you think? And he said, uh, do you uh, agree with those, the teachings that, you, that you've just gotten? And he said, I don't really know. Um, I'm not sure I do agree with it. Here is a close disciple of the Buddha saying that. Now, possibly being rebuked, but instead the Buddha praised him. And he says, wonderful, Shariputra. Don't agree with anything that you don't really, that really hasn't been confirmed. That's good. If you uh, practice and then if it is confirmed, then you can answer me in a different way. And if it isn't, fine. It's very akin in many ways to the scientific method. It's an exercise of our intelligence and our discretion. Okay. What's on your mind? Please. My walk around the loop. Yeah, yeah. So you catch yourself in the imaginary future. It's not I caught there, gotcha. It's more yeah, I see it. Yeah. When I practice, I so often come up against a dryness. 
the other things that are going on. But in the end, I'm saying, so what? So what? You come back to the water. Can we roll the movie back? Yeah. Let's go to where you said a dryness. Yes. Stop right there. Full stop, period. Don't go any further. Be mindful of dryness. See, the practice is very gentle, but it's ruthless. There's nothing that you could tell me uh, that is a dis that I that I'm going to say the same thing. Your present moment has dryness in it. Now, the human mind wants something juicy. It wants it to be uh, moist. Okay, <laughs> okay. So it's a problem, and now you got your problem. And now you're trying to give it to me, and I don't want it. <laughs> okay, uh, dryness is exactly what your practice is. Unwanted, uh, messy. Uh, and then we can get into, oh, well, if I were doing the practice right, this isn't a distraction. If it weren't so dry, I'd really be much more excited about the practice. Da, da, da. Um, but that's the power of the practice is, uh, to begin with, you're being asked to look at things you don't want to look at. And, if you, and it takes some doing to do that because it's going against the grain. We just want to be comfortable. We want to be feel good. We want to get uh, do something and get a reward for it. And here you, I know you practice. And here's dryness. Now, is it has it been dry 100% of the time since you started practicing? No, it hasn't. But of course so not. Or you wouldn't be here. Right. There's so many things that you know, like you say, that come up that you don't want to look at. Yes. So and I see them over and over. And even when I come back, okay, just walk. Uh oh. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Just walk. Where's the light? Where's the joy? <laughs> Where is it? I'm frustrated. Okay, but you see, can I back up? Yeah. Okay. Over and over again. You have time. You see, the time is also on a micro level, not just macro level. Micro level. In other words, uh, okay, I've been wa doing walking meditation or walking for seven minutes. It should be juicy by now. Who said? See, in other words... Uh, you have a, a notion of, of uh, and then you have a memory of that you've been walking just so long and maybe you you bring into it your file of all the walkings you've done and before you know it you're back in like that one week without sleep I don't know if, if, if I'm being clear it now the, the other thing is it's not the, let's say you strongly don't want to look at dryness I'm just going to use that to represent all the unwanted stuff that we humans don't want to look at you're, it's all of us uh, it's not that you have to rub your face in it. It's not that kind of, you get that into that dryness and, and then you let me know what happens. It's not that at all. It's gentle. So that there's dryness and then the next moment is the mind thinks of, well, the Buddha said that that is the practice, dryness. And then you feel like, yuck, I don't want to practice with dryness. Where's all the joy? Where, well, that's your yearning. That's what you want, the future. See, you're expecting a better future if you do this stuff. That's what I was talking about. If I do enough of this, sitting, walking, meditating, eat vegetables, you know, don't hurt anyone, then it's going to be, what were yours? Joy and all that, lights going off, you know, visions, uh, saints coming to visit you, and, you know, just... Uh, sometime in the future, it's going to be a much better life. But the practice is about how is it right now? Now, this requires faith to begin with, because it's asking you to do something in a way that's counterintuitive. Why should I want to be with something that's dry and uninteresting? Uh, because we're conditioned to go towards what makes us happy and to go away from what hurts us. That's sane. There's nothing wrong with that. We're trying to break new ground, which goes beyond plus and minus. We're obsessed with plus all day long. 
get the best seat on the tee. You know, get, get that's the, you know, we, you know, wherever, wherever we are, you know, get this, get that, accumulate. Okay, at least sometimes if we can learn to look at that, what you're going to find. So what you would look at is the resistance, not the dryness. You would see, my goodness, you could feel the muscles tighten up. How much I don't want to do this. I don't care what the Buddha said. You feel the joy, jaw tighten up, and, and then that spreads to, I'm no good, the meditation doesn't work. Uh, what does Larry know anyway? He's from Brooklyn, he's not from India. You know, uh, and before you know it, you're out of here. And I, probably more people have been out of here who came here than are here. Turnover is very enormous in meditation circles, apparently in Europe as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. In other words, people have a romantic idea. They're going to you know, sit and then... Uh, and if you don't get fully and totally enlightened and liberated in five years, then you go to something else. <laughs> a few people stick it out. Everyone's journey is different, but that's where faith does come in. But you do need some verification. It's not just to live off faith. But do you see what I'm getting at? That's the beauty of this sutra, because it's pointing out um, it's a radically different way of relating to your experience, to be fully with it in the moment as it's happening, with no preferences. If it's dry, then, that's, then that dryness, unwanted as it is, those are the perfect materials to practice with. Nothing missing. You're not get, you know, perfect. Because think of all the energy that's trapped in the dryness and in your resistance to the dryness and in your yearning for some imaginary, beautiful, joyful, uh, whatever it is, I don't remember all your words. You know, everything the New Age promises. Picture all the energy in that. Uh, and if we can go through it and allow that that's being held to release itself, that energy is yours then to do with it as you see fit. Does that make sense? Good. Now you got to do it. Please. A Zen friend of mine once said, you're either living in the present or living in the past. Even if you think you're living in the future, you're just extrapolating from the past and imagining what you think would happen based on what you've already... Yeah, that's true. But all that's happening in the present. Right, exactly. Yeah. Even this mental gyration is going on in the present. Yes. So the person is partially correct. Uh, and since, but I'm not the Pope of uh, meditation, so it's just my opinion. Uh, f- if you can find a past that exists auto- in an autonomous way, show it to me. There are memories of it, there are recorded stuff, you know, books that tell us what went, and I'm not saying that's worthless. Not at all. But it's more a matter of how do we relate to what is over with in our own personal life or in the history of, of a particular ethnic group or your family. I'm not saying that's worthless. Not at all. But you have to see how that works in terms of what contribution or lack of or um, harm it's causing in the, in, in the actual life, which is only lived in the present moment. Aliveness can only exp- be experienced here and now. Then everything after that is memory or imagination. But your friend is correct. The future we imagine is based on what's already happened. Yeah. And it will never be like that. For example, in meditation, people are often are frightened of the unknown, silence. Once you taste it, it's nothing to be frightened of. It's a, it's a glorious gift from life. Uh, but our mind is, first of all, we, we're so stuck in thinking, past, future, even about the present, uh, that anything that's other than thought, and by thought I mean 
images, emotions, mental productions, fabrications they're called. Um, first of all, we don't know what exists. The unknown is simply that realm of consciousness where we haven't been to yet. Our culture has not recognized it as anything valid to want to get to. Other cultures have. The ancients in our culture knew about it. Uh, in other words, if you read, that would be more the inner teachings, esoteric teachings, mystical teachings of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and so forth. Am I... I, mainly, I'm listening. Do you do you see it that way? There's only now. Right. Well, I just found that observation helpful to me to know that sure. when I was fantasizing about the future, it looked suspiciously like the past. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometime a much improved future, or some. Well, yeah. Okay. We don't have to beat it to death. Good. Yeah. Please. I know the evening would not be complete without a question from you. Can I tell you something? This gentleman asked lots of questions. I just want to tell you something. I'm not putting you down. You remind me of me. <laughs> because when I first started out, people hated me. And I was, oh, no, not Rosenberg again. Well, why do you feel that? How come? You know? And my teacher would say, let him talk. Let him talk. He's got to get it all out. And he needs, you know, that. and then at a certain point, I just felt like quiet. I, didn't, I, I just start doing it, and, and it answers itself sometimes. Much of the time. So anyway, it's not a put-down. I, I don't have low self-esteem and I'm down on myself or any of that. Okay. To my knowledge. How would I apply this teaching to times when I face a decision I find very painful? decision is about the future. Of course. So, I want to be, so the idea is I need to be in the present, but the, the outcomes that I'm considering are in the future and building on yes. the previous question. I am, I suppose, imagining or, or wonderful, it seems to be. That's those are the two main things the mind does: anguish, 